Good morning. Welcome to Pacific Hope Church. If you're visiting or new with us this morning, we are so glad that you're here. We're continuing our study this morning through the book of Ephesians. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to this text, we're going to be picking up at verse 17 of chapter 4. And before we read it by way of introduction to any who might be new to gathering with us, we are at verse 17 of chapter 4 because we're a church that preaches expository preaching. That means we, we take a text and we preach it portion by portion with the desire to understand what it is that God is communicating to us through his holy word. We don't have a, a doctrine that's looking for a text. We're not trying to push our own ideas into what's here. We're trying to understand what God desires to communicate to us. We're also a church that preaches the word of God authoritatively, not because we're smart or well-trained, but because we stand on the word of God, which is our authority. You may have also noticed that sometimes we actually preach twice. So we're not a church that highly recommends making reservations for after our time together because sometimes we get a double header, right, Sean? We're, we love what God has done for us, and we invite you to fellowship with us afterwards because we'll tell you what God has done for us. This is not just a set of ideas, a set of beliefs. This is what Christ has done in our lives, and we're passionate about this. That said... I will invite you to stand with me out of reverence for this being God's holy and infallible word. We're going to read eight verses from verse 17 through verse 24 of Ephesians chapter 4. The word of God says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Father God, might you soften our hearts and open our eyes and prepare us to receive from this your word. God, I pray that you would allow the words that are spoken from your holy word to be transformative. God, for any in our midst that, that don't know you as their Savior, might you draw them to yourself. And God, for those who are in you and you in them, might you make us more like you through this, your word. In the name of son, your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we resume our study at, at verse 17. And our, our brother Paul, the man that God used to pen this inspired word, is going to be, yet again, just a bit bossy. We learn that as we move from the first half of, of Ephesians, which is very instructional in nature, now it's going to get to a point where it's exhortation. Paul's going to tell us what we need to do with this information that he's given us. And Paul begins this verse by saying, Now, I say, now this I say and testify in the Lord. It's really important that we understand the, the source credibility, if you will, right? We learned last week that God has uniquely gifted, put five different types of people within his church. We learned that there's apostles and there's prophets and there's evangelists and there's pastors and there's teachers. And Paul himself belonged to that first group of people. He was an apostle. We started out the book of Ephesians with him establishing that. I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ one who was ordained and sent by Jesus Christ, one of those who had a personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he himself being saved by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, being transformed, dedicated his entire life to communicating the message of the gospel. And based on that apostolic authority, Paul lays out these next few verses that we'll be looking through together. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. 
It's always useful to understand how other versions of the Bible lay this out. And another way of, of saying this is, I insist along with the Lord. Do you catch that? I insist, and I, and I say this along with the Lord. He's speaking with great authority. These are not just his instructions. These are instructions from the Lord. And he's laying out there and he says, and I testify. It's a strong statement. What he's about to say needs to be understood by those who are the recipients of this letter. He lays out some important things to understand about conduct. Now again, if you're visiting with us here this morning, I want to make sure that we understand that the anatomy of this text, this eight verses that we're going to look at, help us understand how we as a church affirm the word of God. You see, this text talks in two different ways, kind of a metaphor about what our conduct looks like. Paul's going to talk about don't walk this way. Last week we saw walk this way. This week he gives us a negative and says don't walk this way. Paul gives us a, a second statement, which is put off your old self and put on your new self. At first glance, this might look like Paul's focus is on outward conduct, on morality. But if we look at these eight verses, right in the middle of it, we're going to find that the centerpiece of what Paul has to say here is in verses 20 and 21. And that is, the message that Paul wants us to understand is the transformation that comes through an encounter with Jesus Christ. And you see, that's what we're about as followers of Christ. We are not about teaching morality. We are not about teaching just conduct. We're about reforming the inward man through an encounter with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Out of that, the outward conduct will be changed. Jesus said that, right? He said, you're whitewashed tombs on the outside, you Pharisees. You're dead inside. Outside, you look one way. Inside, you're dead. Christ also said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The inward problem is what needs to be addressed first. And that's what Paul's going to take us through. Yes, we're going to talk about our outward conduct, but we're going to begin by understanding our inward condition. Paul says, I insist along with the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. There's a lot to unpack in this statement. There's the idea of, of who are the Gentiles. We've learned through this book that Paul is talking to a, a group of people who are comprised of Jews and of Gentiles. They're now united in Christ. They're one people. God has torn down the division wall between them. He's broken down the hostility and he's made them one group. So what's he talking about Gentiles again for? Why is he saying don't walk like the Gentiles? And our focus might easily be looking at how this other group of people lives. If we were to put the word Gentile in another context, it's the peoples, the nations, it's everybody else. And it would be easy to read this and think that Paul is telling us, hey, you, church, don't live like them out there. And how often we do that, right? But you see, the thing is, as Paul addresses our conduct, he's not telling us to live better than everyone out there. He's going to tell us to live like Christ. Our standard is not comparative. Our standard is Christ. The focus of this really ought to be that you no longer walk, right? This is not an us and a them. This is a before and an after. If we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what Paul wants us to understand is, remember what you were, Remember what you were before this transformation occurred? Don't live like that. It's not simply don't live like the world. It's don't live like the old man. In chapter 2 of the book of Romans, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Romans chapter 1 and 2 today, Paul says, as he addresses those who are believers, he reminds them of what they once were. This is important. 
What is it that Christ has done in our lives? He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O, o man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very th same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, this is what Paul wants us to understand as we approach this. He wants our conduct to be different, and he wants us to remember what we were before we encountered Christ. The important application for this is it's, it's not a message of comparing our conduct with the world. It's comparing our conduct with what we were before Christ did his work in us. Now, to understand the work that Christ has done in us, we have to look at the very bad news of the gospel. And these first verses in our text today are going to force us to come head to head with that very bad news. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their ignorance. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. These are, these are indictments of what the conduct of those who have not yet been transformed look like. Now, Paul wrote the Ephesian letter from prison in Rome. Curiously enough, Paul had longed to go to Rome for quite some time and earlier on in his apostolic ministry wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And in that church in Rome, he tells us some very parallel things to what we find in Ephesians chapter 4. Some of you have, may have done your pre-work this week. If you didn't, it's still available on the website. You can go there and download it. There's a, a remarkable comparison between what we find in Romans 1 and Ephesians 4. Now, the order of things is slightly different. And in fact, the Ephesians account's a little bit shorter that might possibly be because Paul spent this time with the Ephesian church and laid this out to him firsthand. But by God's grace, in his perfect word, he's preserved for us Romans chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4. And we can see in these texts the same things. For those of you who are note takers, I want you to write down the four things that are kind of part of this process of the hardening of our hearts, of our, of our position before coming to Christ. So the, the four words are these. Harden. Darken. Deaden and estrange. One more time. Harden, darken, deaden, and estrange. Another word for estrange is alienated. Okay, but let's start with this process of, of being hardened. One of the verses that, that Brother Sean pre preached for us is Isaiah 63 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. And in Proverbs, chapter 28, verse 14, it says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart falls into calamity. You see, there's a connection here between hardening and fearing the Lord. That's why the scripture says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Remarkably, this idea of hardening is setting ourselves up pridefully against creator God. And we see this from the very beginning of creation. If we go back to Adam, we understand that we're descendants of Adam. What did God do? He created Adam. He created everything. He gives Adam stewardship over all of creation. He says, hey, Adam, what do you want to call that one? Zebra, I like that, right? He says, name all of the animals, and he says, all of these things are at your disposition, but don't eat from that tree. And what does Adam do? Well, I, cool of the garden, don't see God around, forget the fear of the Lord, my wife would like this piece of fruit, I'm going to do it. 
And he says, you know what? The fact that God's creator and he's given me all, this doesn't matter. I'm going to usurp his authority. I'm going to harden my heart against him and I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Lack of fear of God. And that hardness, that pride, sets us up for the next processes of, of the darkening and the deadening and the estrangement. But to understand that this problem that Adam has is inclusive, it affects us, we should go together to Romans chapter one. We understand that our understanding of creation denies God as our creator. Or we, we put ourselves in his place instead. Romans chapter one, starting at verse 18. Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See that? Hardening. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see that? God makes himself known in creation. But yet man says, well, if God's creator, then he's higher power than I am. We better come up with some other way of explaining this whole thing, that, that there's not a God and that we just cosmically came, right? We remove God from that. This is the futility of our minds, the futility of our thinking. This, the next part of this is we see that they're darkened in their understanding. Their will doesn't fear God. They're hardened, and so they have to change the way they understand creation and the way they understand creator to fit the hardness of their hearts. Romans 1, 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Then ultimately... You can keep your finger in Romans 1. We'll go back to Ephesians 4. Then we get to this point where the heart is hardened. The mind is darkened. And then we see that there's a, an alienation that comes, an estrangement, and a deadness. The deadness part we see really clearly in what we understand from verse 19 of Ephesians chapter four, it says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word callous there, depending on how you plug it in and, and understand the words around it, in Greek, it could mean a callousness like on your eyes, like scales on your eyes, right? It's a blindness. It could also be a callous like on your, your skin, right? Where eventually your skin becomes hardened and, and numb and you can't feel either pleasure or pain. I've never really swung a hammer that much, but I've heard that happens. Then you have the hardening of bones or joints, right? Like the calcification and movements impaired. But all of that is another way of saying deadened. As Sean explained, we become calloused, our conscience becomes seared, and we end up saying, forget creator. Forget understanding what he's created and why he's created it for his glory. I'm going to do what I want to do. And God permits that. And he permits that deadening so that he can do a work in us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and once you, and once, you once walked. Right? That's it. We were dead in our sins. We've learned this through Ephesians, right? What did we do? to change our understanding? Nothing. He enlightened the eyes of our heart. He gave us new life. Ultimately then, this process of going from hardened to darkened to deadened leads to the estrangement, the being 
cast away from God. You see, with, with Adam, he was created in the image of God, as we, we were all. But that image was marred by sin. And the consequence of that, besides the, the hardening, Adam sets himself up against God, and besides the, the warping of his understanding, oh yeah, we can just eat this one thing, it's okay, right? And, and besides the deadening of his conscience that told him he could rebel against God, it resulted ultimately in his expulsion from the garden. We've seen several times that in recent texts that our access to God was restricted because of original sin. And our access to God is restricted because of our own sin, our own rebellion to God. Adam was removed from the garden. Ephesians also tells us that this alienation is part of our reality until Christ does a work in us. He says, Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and with it, without God in the world. No hope. As we move through this text, we'll understand that that verse 19, we see this process coming to a a culmination. We've been hardened, we've been darkened, we've been alienated, we've been deadened, and now it says in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It says here, they've given themselves over. This is self-inflicted. But as we understand, interpreting scripture as a whole, as we looked at these texts, it's God that permitted those things. God permitted them to turn themselves over to the sinfulness. The sinfulness that's described here is that of sensuality. And sensuality means an unrestrained life. Doing whatever you want. And the idea of callous there is there's no shame. Shamelessly committing acts of rebellion against God. But God, but God. Going back to Romans chapter one, I want to look at, and this is a a difficult teaching, but we see here that God clearly describes that he's allowed this process to happen, and it's not just that they've given themselves over to sin, but he's given them over to that sin. Not all of God's word is PG rated, so bear with me. In verse 20, 22, we'll start there. Romans 1, 22. It says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's idolatry. Bold, brazen, unashamed, shameless idolatry. They replaced God and put other stuff in his place. And so verse 24 goes on and says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is talking about sexual perversion. It says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. How's that for some light reading? This is what God gave them over to. And Paul 
love Brother Paul. He, he's great at giving lists, right? He gives us lots of lists. He gives us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. He's going to give us the, the armor of Christ in Ephesians. And he's giving us a list here, and this is not a comprehensive list. The number of shameless, sinful things that the human heart can contrive is endless, okay? And we can read this list, and we can look at something like homosexuality, and we could call that one out and treat it somewhat differently. But guess what? This list includes stuff like disobedient to parents, Ouch. I wasn't looking at you intentionally. <laughs> Haughty, boastful, slanderers, inventors of evil. The list, it's all there together. And you know what that list deserves? According to what we just read, death. And God gives us over to those things, but does God desire our death? No, in no way. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. The entire reason that God gives us over to this hardening, in this darkening, in this deadening, and this is estranging, is so that in our sin, we would reach out to him. Augustine said, The penalty of sin is sin. Isn't that remarkable? But if we think about our own sinful hearts, if left unchecked, will drive us to our own destruction. You struggle with the sin of materialism? Eventually your bills are going to get ahead of you. Do you struggle with the, the sin of gossip? Eventually you're going to destroy your relationships. Do you struggle with, with sexual sin? Eventually... You'll destroy your purity or your marriage or your family. Do you just struggle with old-fashioned selfishness? Your life will become a wreck. God will allow us to be given over to our own sins so that we would reach out to him, so that he would respond and he would intervene. You see, all of this conduct is outward to help us understand the severity of our inward problem. And there's only one solution for that inward problem. There are no steps to follow to make yourself a more moral person. There are no steps to follow to leave behind evil tendencies. There's only one remediation. And here we find it. Praise God in verse 20. It says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. What Paul is saying is, but, but you have had an encounter with Christ. The word learned is more like introduced. He's not talking about, you got some Christian concepts. You've heard some, some good ideas about Christianity. He's talking about an encounter with Christ Jesus. And I'm not talking about the construct of Christ. I'm talking about the biblical Jesus. There's only two responses to the biblical Jesus. There's fall on your face and worship him and accept his grace and mercy. Or there's to find him and to be an offense and to dismiss him and to continue to harden yourself and to rebel and to continue in your darkness and to continue in your deadness and to be separated from him. Those are the only two responses. There is no neutral response. It's not like, yeah, met Jesus, heard about Jesus. No, there's only two responses. When we come to know Christ, the response is radical. The change is radical. And look how, how binary, if you forgive the term, this transformation is. I have a couple of verses for you to walk through to understand the transformation that happens in our lives when we come to Christ. We were hardened, right? We were hardened in our sin. And what does he do? He softens our hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says, And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. He'll put a spirit, he'll put new life in us who were dead. Praise God for that. What about darkened? When we come to Christ, he himself being the light of the world illuminates Paul says in Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and to what are the riches 
of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He softened our hearts. He's enlightened our minds. And we're about deadened. He gives us new life. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Do you see that inward transformation that's occurring upon coming to Christ? What about estranged or alienated, right? Ephesians 2, 13 and on says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one man in the place of two, so making peace and it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, the estrangement, the alienation, their being far away is resolved. He has brought him to himself through his shed blood. He's also made us a part of a, a community, that is his, his church, founded on himself as the chief cornerstone. So we're no longer hardened, deadened, darkened, and estranged. That's the good news. Not that you can take away from that good news, but I have to temper this with just a little bit of understanding that even for those of us who have encountered Christ, even those of us who have come into an encounter with Jesus Christ, we're still marred in our image of God. We are still broken until he ultimately glorifies us. And because of that, we have to be careful that we don't fall back into some of those tendencies of the old flesh. That's why Paul's saying this. Don't live like you used to. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, while we have salvation offered to us through Christ, our heart is still prone to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Right, that's our reality. And so for that reason, we need to remember what God has done for us ultimately through the justification of Jesus Christ. But during this painful, agonizingly slow process of sanctification, we need to remember to be careful of that process. Don't let there be distance between you and your Savior. Returning to Ephesians 4 verse 20, he says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Understanding that this truth is in Jesus is really incredibly important. Romans 1, 24 and 25 says, Therefore God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and created the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's a difficult truth. We live in a world that does not like absolute truth. But this is absolute truth. Not this as a construct, this as the person of Jesus Christ. You see what that says? It says, as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. A quote that we can put up on the screen helps us understand that in the world that, that we live in, the absolute truth of Jesus Christ that we hold out there, truth contrasts falsehood with reality. Did you catch that? Truth contrasts falsehood with reality. You see, we see creation, we twist our understanding, move God aside, our minds come up with other crazy ideas that don't coincide with what Scripture has told us, And we walk away from the Lord. This truth is tough. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ, 
watched others walk away as Christ made these statements. And what did Jesus ask them? You guys want to go too? This too hard for you? And Peter said it well. To who else should we go? To who else should we run? There is only one truth. Only you have eternal life. That's absolute church. Stand on that. Understanding that Christ is that truth will bring about an inward transformation. We see it throughout scripture, right? We got Zacchaeus climbing up a tree. Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. His life was transformed. Peter, mending nets, dressed like a fisherman, doing what fishermen do. Peter, come with me. Make you a fisher of men. Or the, the Samaritan woman had been given over shamelessly to her own sin. Yeah, had five livings. And what did Jesus say? I am the Christ. Go and sin no more. She encountered truth and her life was transformed and that's what God has done for us. And if you think there's just Bible accounts of this happening, stick around after church and ask somebody. Ask somebody, what has Christ done in your life? Has, has Christ softened your heart and it enlightened your eyes and quickened your soul? Tell me about it. I guarantee you, somebody's waiting for you to ask. And if nobody asks you, tell them anyway, right? Just tell them anyway, it's fine. Let me tell you how I came to Christ. And you, you see this, and this is why Paul writes with his passion. He was dead in sin. His eyes had the, the scales on his eyes. He was blinded physically so that the Holy Spirit would help him understand what his heart had been like. And then his scales are removed, and he goes on to proclaim at great expense the truth of what Jesus did for him. You see, as we, we look at this, we understand that this is a before and an after. This is before we had truth and after we had the truth of Jesus Christ. So now we, we move on to understand conduct just a bit. And again, the two ways that Paul describes conduct here are our walk, right? We've seen so far in this book, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We see in Ephesians 5.1, 5.2 rather, and walk in love. This is a lifestyle, how you are supposed to walk. In this particular case, he's also telling us, don't walk this way. And then he switches a metaphor on us and he talks about clothing. He talks about how we are, are dressed and how that ought to reflect what has happened inwardly in our hearts. I'd invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I, I want you to be familiar with where this is in Scripture. And this is important because as Christ has done this radical transformation in our lives, he took us from dead to alive, from darkness to light, from far off to now he's made us, as we learned last week, ministers of the gospel. Each of you is a minister of the gospel. And another way of saying minister is that of priest. We learn in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you are now priests of a royal lineage. You've been made ministers to the Lord. Now, having said that, God establishes a standard for his people, a standard of holiness. And the book of Exodus is full of all sorts of kind of hard to understand things about what God wants so that his people look differently than everyone else around them. In verses 2 and, and 3 of Exodus 28, we see some instructions. It says, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful, in whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And he goes on to describe what this thing looks like. And I guarantee you, if you saw somebody else walking around in Sinai, right? Wandering around the wilderness, be like, yeah, he's a priest. His apparel looks very different than everyone else's. He looks holy. And what happens throughout scripture when those who are transformed inwardly, set aside for God's service and told to dress holy, fall short? Time for our weekly dose of Zechariah. 
Yes. Turn with me to the book of Zechariah, our loosely linked Old Testament minor prophet. We want to see how God responds to his people and specifically gives a vision to his prophet of Joshua, the high priest, one who was supposed to be dressed in a special way, given holiness, set apart for God's work. And here's what we see, starting at verse 1 of chapter 3 of Zechariah. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The snake, that's what he always does, right? Accuses. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Do you catch that? Filthy garments. This is Joshua, the high priest. There's entire chapters in the book of Exodus that describe the, the stones and the breastplate and the tunic and the headpiece, all of these things that represent holiness. And here, Zechariah has this vision of the high priest covered in filthy garments. And when I say filthy, I mean like excrement filthy. Like this isn't just like he got dirty on his way into the temple. This is filth. This is repulsive. This is unholy. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with the garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, with a capital B. For behold, on that stone I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity from this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. You see what's happening here? Joshua, the high priest, stained by sin, is given by God new garments. It wasn't up to him to, to change his garments, to change his conduct. The Holy Spirit does that in us. The Holy Spirit does that work through the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we're called to holiness. We're called to be dressed in such a way that God puts us in those holy garments, makes us holy priests, does all of the transformation for us. But just like the unity that we have to maintain, we now have to walk in such a way. We have to walk as gospel ministers. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, Be holy as I am holy. The application for us there is that it's God that patiently does the work in us of changing our hearts, transforming them, and allowing our outward conduct to reflect that. Now, there's an important statement that I want to make here for us as a church. It's easy as human beings to get caught up with the outward conduct and be less concerned with the inward transformation. I had the opportunity while in Honduras to um, be a part of a, a funeral preparation. In that part of the world, there's no embalming. There's really no funeral home. And so the family is responsible to change the garments of their deceased family member and put them in the casket. And I had the opportunity to observe this, and it's not pleasant. It smells. It's tragic. It's sad. It's disgusting. And, and in this particular occasion, I watched the family change this man's clothes and put this man in a tie and a coat. And one of the family members steps back and says, he sure looks good, doesn't he? Like, are you crazy? He's dead. He's dead. Why are we worried about what he's dressed in? He's got bigger problems. 
And don't we do that as a church? We look at the world around us and we're like, look at, look at, they stink. We need to change how they're dressed. We need to change their conduct. But that's not their problem. Their problem is they're dead. Their problem is they need an encounter with the Jesus Christ of the Bible. They need an encounter with the Jesus Christ that we have encountered. That brings about the change. Once they've had that encounter and God has given them new life, then they join us in this journey of sanctification. And this journey of sanctification that we do together united requires us to truth and love, requires us to bear with one another as sometimes our walk and our clothing aren't as they're supposed to be. My teenage sons are out of town this week, so I'm fair to use them in the sermon, and I will tell you that there are times when a teenage boy wears the same shirt for multiple days. You ever notice that? And sometimes they continue to wear that favorite shirt until it doesn't fit them anymore. Like, that shirt is unbecoming. It does not fit you any longer. That shirt is unbecoming of someone who has indoor plumbing available to them. And sometimes we need that loving call out from our brother and sisters. The book of Jude, verses 22 and 23, talk a little bit about addressing, we've, we've looked at this prophet, right, Jude? And he talks about that which is false teaching and sinfulness infiltrating the church. And look what he says. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, and save others by snatching them out of the fire to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Your shirt stinks. Put on the one that you've been given. You've grown out of that conduct. Would you please leave it behind? Those are things that scripture exhorts us to examine. Last week, we saw that we're called to live worthy of our calling. And another word for that is a vocation. We have to dress for the job that we've been given. If we're priests, take off the dirty clothes. If we're holy, walk as though we're holy. In Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, we're given a, a clear instruction about what we're supposed to put on. We're supposed to put on this new self and dress accordingly. Scripture says this. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from the sleep. For salvation is now nearer than when we first believed. The night is gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is a, an admonition and exhortation to the church. And there's a few things that are worth mentioning here. One is the vestment, the clothing that we're supposed to put on to live worthy of our calling is armor. Spoiler. We're going to talk more about armor in two chapters, right? We're exposed to put on armor because the calling that we have is that of battle. It's also armor of light because we live in a dark world. Our conduct is supposed to be different than what we see there. We're also reminded that time is short. Tell others what Christ has done in your life. The verse stands out, and we're going to see another verse in Ephesians to talk about this wakeness, waking from sleep. It says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from the sleep. And as we understand our mission as a church and what Christ has called us to, I will say we need to prayerfully be more concerned about the awakeness of the church than the wokeness of the world. If we're doing what the church is supposed to be doing, putting on the armor of light, we're that light in the darkness. Armor up. Dress for your calling. Focus on our conduct that we might be not better than the world, but more like Christ. That's the call. Let's end with this. Revelation chapter 22. 
we see the putting on of clothing and what Christ has done and what Christ guarantees will ultimately done when our, our pilgrimage is over. This is the reversal of the curse. Starting at verse 11 of Revelation 22. Let the evildoer still do evil and let the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. See that? Entrance back to Eden, a new heaven, a new earth, an image like we see in Ephesians, being more like Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 24 says, And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Created after the likeness of Christ. The image that was marred in the beginning is now restored. The clothing that was filthy has now been washed in the blood of the lamb. And the separation from God through Christ permanently united with him for all eternity. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the work that you have done in us. For the before and the after, we thank you that you saw fit, Lord God, to soften our hearts to enlighten the eyes of our heart, to quicken us by giving us your Holy Spirit, by giving us new birth, and by drawing us near to yourself. We thank you for that. And Father God, I pray for um, each and every one of my brothers and sisters here in this place, myself as well, Lord God, that you would allow us to live worthy of the calling of the gospel, that you would allow us to put off the old self and to put on the new self, that you would allow us to clothe ourselves in holiness in a way that shows others what you have graciously done for us. May you be praised through our lives. In your name we pray, amen.